The Hamlet Podcast. Hello and welcome to this week's book club episode. Episode 13, which means we're a third of the way through the plays, back in the world of Falstaff and Prince Hal for Henry IV Part 2. This is a strange play for sure. As mentioned when we discussed Part 1, it doesn't really feel like Shakespeare was actually planning this play when he wrote the first instalment. That turned out to be very popular, and that's presumably why we wind up with this second play. That isn't to say that it's a bad play. Indeed, it has rather surprised me this week as I've spent more time with it. This play is much darker than its predecessor. It's a play of degeneration and decline. The world is coarser, everyone is a bit older, and there's almost constant discussion of sickness. Some of the characters are senile, or sour, or shallow, or stupid, or almost insane, like Ancient Pistol, who appears here for the first time and will entertain us in two more plays. This is a world that feels like it is moving towards entropy, a gradual decline into disorder. It is autumnal, it is unstable even. Early in the play, the Archbishop has to ask, what trust is in these times? Shakespeare seems to take some pains to mirror little aspects of the first play in this one. Now, whether this is structural integrity or just his own pleasure at the symmetry is anyone's guess. In the first play, for example, we saw the Battle of Shrewsbury, whereas in this one it's the affair in the forest of Galtree. Very different. Almost a shadow of a battle. Shakespeare does add some very distinctive features to this play, mind you, like opening with an induction spoken by the character of Rumour. Rumour would have been familiar to audiences from earlier medieval plays and pageants. He was, appropriately, dressed in a costume made of tongues. He seems almost to mock the audience, having introduced himself, asking... But what need I thus, my well-known body, to anatomize among my household? Why is rumour here? I run before King Harry's victory. Why should he introduce himself when he is among his people? He's playing into the greed of the audience to hear salacious stories and rumours, and sets the ball rolling by straight-up lying about what happened at Shrewsbury. This spreads and the scene shifts to Northumberland hearing conflicting reports of his son Hotspur's death in that battle. It's a very sour note to start the play, unsettling any expectations of more jolly japes between Prince Al and Falstaff. Indeed, just about everyone in the play seems at some level to believe something that isn't true. Shallow believes Falstaff will pay him back the money he owes him. Mistress Quickly believes that he might even marry her. Falstaff himself believes that Prince Hal will elevate him if and when he becomes the king, and King Henry believes that his son is an incurable reprobate. And of course, there's the very sneaky trap laid by John of Lancaster. Don't believe everything you hear, rumour would appear to counsel us. And it's probably very good advice. As in the previous play, We have three central characters, Falstaff, Prince Hal, and King Henry IV. When we were talking about Julius Caesar, I think I mentioned that plays often get named for the most high-status character in the story. Julius Caesar certainly isn't the lead, and the case is likewise pretty thin for Henry IV, not least since we don't even see him in this play until Act Three. In this play, he's in an even worse state than he was at the end of his play Part One. 
Now he's sick in his nightgown and he's desperate for some sleep. Some writers have used his speeches in this play to prove that Shakespeare himself was an insomniac. I think at best it shows that he's a sympathetic observer of human nature. Maybe he wrote from experience. Certainly any of us who have suffered from a lack of sleep can identify very easily with the King Henry's woes. How many thousand of my poorest subjects are at this hour asleep? Oh, sleep. Oh, gentle sleep, nature's soft nurse, how have I frighted thee, that thou no more wilt weigh my eyelids down and steep my senses in forgetfulness. It's a terrific speech, and it ends with the oft-misquoted line, Uneasy lies the head that wears a crown. Of course, we can presume that the reason King Henry is so sleepless is his guilt and discomfort at having unkinged Richard II. He's still talking about going to Jerusalem to make up for this regicide, but now it's his health rather than battles and kingly duties that are preventing him from doing so. There's been a prophecy, too, that says he will die in Jerusalem, but there's also a room in his castle that bears that name. Just as the king is unwell, so too, it seems, is the whole country. As Henry says, You perceive the body of our kingdom, how foul it is, what rank diseases grow, and with what danger near the heart of it. Shakespeare lets Henry stand for his country, and just as the king is sleepless and sick and dying, so too England is not well. The play assaults us with gout, pox, gluttony, apoplexy, consumption and a good deal of vomiting. Even when we finally meet Falstaff, he for whom we've probably bought our tickets, he erupts onto the stage for a conversation about his urine. Continuing the sickness talk, the young boy who's had the unenviable task of bringing this liquid for medical analysis reports that Falstaff has more diseases than the doctor knew. Ever the optimist, Falstaff insists that he will turn diseases to commodity. Of course he will. He always does. Everything now seems to be more squalid, more sordid. Speaking of commodities, we meet Doll Tearsheet, who is an actual prostitute rather than just a bar wench, the like of whom we've seen in part one. She is quite sentimental, but has an outrageously foul mouth to boot. She's just the last in a long line of women with whom Sir John has dallied over the years. We get a sense that it's a very long line. Mr. Squickley mentions having known him for 29 years, and Justice Shallow has fond memories of one Jane Nightwork. Of course, Falstaff has to point out that she's now old. She cannot choose but be old. Certain, she's old. Of course she is. Shallow mentions that their carousing was 55 years ago. Falstaff himself insists that he's still young, often to ridiculous comic effect. He maintains that he was born with white hair, and no amount of haranguing from the Lord Chief Justice will make him act his age any time soon. Falstaff is brilliant at pretending. He pretends to be deaf at the start of the play, just as he pretended to be dead at the end of the previous one. Deep down, perhaps he knows that he can't pretend forever, there is much talk of the end and of endings, although he won't let Doll speak of such things, lest she seem like a death head in the room, making him contemplate mortality. 
he's much more comfortable doing so with Justice Shallow as they discuss those chimes at midnight that they heard. Theirs is a nostalgia distinct to fellow travellers, realising that they are perhaps reaching the end of the road. Even if Falstaff does allow for the occasional glimmer of nostalgia, he is in no way prepared for the breakup that will happen at the end of the play. This is very much the play about Prince Hal ending his relationship with Falstaff in order to become Henry V. We discussed how the King and Sir John are two different kinds of father figures for the young prince, and while it works out fairly simply that the King must die, it's much more brutal that Hal has to renounce, or rather break, this false staff, this outrageous old braggart who can no longer be a crutch. At the start of the play, We hear that the king has severed them, and so we very seldom see them together. One of these scenes is at the tavern, again Shakespeare playing with the symmetry of the two plays, locating this scene in exactly the same place as the big tavern scene in part one. But now everything is lesser. The jokes, the people, the comebacks, the fun, the love. And the scene is considerably shorter. It is once again broken up by someone knocking at the door of the tavern, demanding that the prince return to court. In his one soliloquy in part one, Prince Henry told us exactly what he was doing, playing at being a boisterous young man, but ready to man up when the time came. In a tiny but chilling moment during that glorious tavern scene, Falstaff is shouting, Banish plump Jack and banish all the world. You'd nearly miss it. But Henry says, I do. I will. And he does. When Henry banishes Jack, it's brutal, and it is in public. Falstaff is calling to him on the street at the very end of the play, and Henry stops his first procession as king to cut the ties in front of an audience. Remember that first soliloquy. It began with, I know you all. Yet more symmetry. Now king... Henry begins this speech with I know thee not, old man. Fall to thy prayers. How ill white hairs become a fool and jester. I have long dreamed of such a kind of man, so surfeit swelled, so old and so profane. But being awaked, I do despise my dream. There's a surprising amount of mythology quoted and mentioned in this play. Hal himself has likened himself to Jove, and when he spies on Falstaff with Dahl, he calls them Saturn and Venus. At the end, Falstaff also calls him Jove as he cheers to him in the street, but to no avail. In mythology, Jove, also known as Jupiter, had to conquer his father, Saturn, in order to become the king of the gods. Saturn's time may have been a golden age, but Jove had to cut the cord in order to ascend. No accident that Shakespeare peppers his stew with these tiny references, so that Jove, Hal, has to undo his relationship with Saturn, Falstaff, in order to become king. If you'd like some even more obscure references, there's an extended passage toward the end of Simon Callow's terrific book about playing Falstaff. He discusses a very intriguing theory that Shakespeare likened Falstaff to Socrates, It's rather complicated, so I'll spare you too many of the details, but it is worth pursuing if you're interested. All you need to remember is that Socrates was eventually condemned to death for misleading young men. The new King Henry does banish plump Jack, 
and banishes all that world behind him. Shakespeare elasticates history a little bit because he needs to keep Prince Hal somewhat unblemished. John of Lancaster is quite shockingly Machiavellian in this play. He is Hal's brother and a real cutthroat, but he's painted in black to keep Prince Hal's hands clean. Likewise, Shakespeare makes Henry IV rather sicker for rather longer than he seems to have been in the historical chronicles, but his illness casts a very useful pall over all of this England. It's quite interesting to be reading this play, so very full of illnesses and political uncertainty, at the time we're reading it. It resonates quite powerfully, as perhaps it did in Shakespeare's London, where discussing the topic of succession or new leadership was against the law, and plague outbreaks were almost annual. The scene of Henry grabbing the crown while his father slept was all the more shocking if you think about how Shakespeare's monarch was an old woman. What if she died in her sleep? Henry grabbing the crown from his father's pillow was a famous story. Shakespeare didn't invent the scene at all. If anything, it feels like he was playing around, and instead of the blunt, well-known answer that Henry thought his father was dead and took the crown, Shakespeare turns it into an extended scene between father and son, a scene of reconciliation and a discussion of what a burden kingship can be. If you believe him, Henry Jr. starts to look like the heroic noble king that the country seems to need. And then his father does die, and he banishes Falstaff, and he's ready to rule in his own right. Just as curiously as it opens, the play ends with an epilogue. It's performed by a dancer, and it speaks of debts paid and promises kept. Pretty ironic, since there's been so very little of that throughout the play. As it ends, Falstaff is still asking for money and has been rejected, and he hasn't married Mistress Quickly, and all the characters we've spent time with for these two plays face an uncertain future in this new regime. The epilogue promises that our humble author will continue the story, with Sir John in it, and make you merry with fair Catherine of France, where, for anything I know, Falstaff shall die of a sweat. This play began with rumour, reminding us not to believe anything we hear, There will of course be another play, Henry V, but whether all of these promises made in the epilogue will be kept remains to be seen. For next week, we will continue navigating these choppy, unstable political waters, but we're going to have a look at what has been called one of the problem plays. We move from England to Vienna for measure for measure. I hope you'll join me then.